So it was, um, it was a bit of a heavy week for me this week. Um, I wrote on my, my Facebook page on Wednesday that my, my heart hurt. And a um, number of people in our community wrote and, and asked why and wrote all sorts of um, encouraging things and so on. And, uh, and yet, at the end of the day, it wasn't for me. Uh, my my heart hurt for friends of mine um, because I found out this last week that uh, yet another friend um, another friend's marriage is is falling apart and there's a whole lot of of brokenness and there was infidelity involved and um, it's just ugly and and messy and hard and. Um, and it's just a conversation that I never ever get used to having no matter how many times we have it uh, a friend of mine said this week you know it seems like 10 years ago we were all getting married and 5 years ago we were all having kids and now we're all getting divorces and there are just times where it feels like that um and it makes you sad, and it makes you angry, and it makes you frustrated, and it just makes your heart hurt to see what happens to families and homes, and just to see the devastation that happens in the wake. And and I know I'm not explaining anything to anybody in this room because. All of us are a part of the walking wounded, um, people whose lives have been touched by divorce, whether it's you know, your marriage or your parents' marriage or your kids' marriage or your siblings' marriage or your friends' marriage, somewhere in your circle, um, you have experienced the devastation that happens when marriages uh, come apart. And... Uh, and it happens every bit as much in the church as it does anywhere else. The statistics about marriage and divorce among people who profess to follow Jesus Christ are really not very much better, if at all, uh, than what happens to marriages just in our culture at large. And it's just sad, and it makes me, it just makes me feel like I Jesus wanted something different than all of the hurt and the pain that comes out of divorce. He wanted something different for people than that. Um, he wanted a life that's filled with joy and abundance and peace and hope and satisfaction and a life that comes out of wholeheartedly following him. And, uh, and that's just, I mean, that's just not, Anything like what happens in the wake of a marriage that falls apart. And that's what Jesus talks about next in this Sermon on the Mount that we've been, that we've been studying. We've been looking for the last three weeks. This is our fourth Sunday in this series called The Heart Condition. Where Jesus is talking about what a life of wholehearted devotion to him looks like. And... Um, and what he's been saying for all of these weeks that we've been studying, he's just been saying that what it means to be fully devoted to following him is not a, a matter of um, 
religious rule keeping, of some kind of external conformity to uh, some religious standard, making sure that all the boxes are checked and all the rules are, are kept. It's not about external conformity. It's about inner transformation. It's about being a different kind of person on the inside, about God cutting out the hardness of our stubborn hearts and replacing them with soft and tender hearts that are filled with love for him and love for people that are motivated and empowered by the Holy Spirit to be different. And so two weeks ago, we talked about what that looks like in the midst of our relationships where, there are, where there's conflict. And we saw that Jesus said in those relationships where there are conflict, the question is not about, you know, the rule is not do not commit murder. It's not a question of whether or not you've intentionally done something to harm the other person. Look, I didn't mean to hurt them, so, you know, I'm good. The question is not whether you intentionally meant to hurt them. The question is whether you have intentionally done everything you can to love them. The rule is not do not murder. The rule is do reconciliation and bring healing to the relationship. It's love, not rule keeping. And last week we looked at our romantic relationships and the, the rule of, you know, you should not commit adultery. Don't sleep with anyone who's not your boyfriend or, or you know, and don't sleep with anyone who's not your spouse. You know, the question is not, have you ever slept with your boyfriend or girlfriend or somebody from a bar? Have you ever slept with somebody with, who isn't your spouse? That's not the question. The question is, is your heart so full of love for people that you want to treat everyone with dignity and respect rather than reducing them to a sexual object who exists for your personal gratification? It's about love and not rule keeping. And then, I guess in a sense, in a way that's not surprising, having talked about conflict and anger and having talked about adultery and lust, it's not surprising that Jesus turns next to the issue of divorce. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, it's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Uh, Jesus isn't quoting the Old Testament, he's paraphrasing it. And not from the Ten Commandments like the last two weeks. Uh, this time from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verse 1, where it's, where it's written this way. It says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, Andy writes a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house, dot, dot, dot. And it goes on to say that if you, if, you know, a guy finds something displeasing about his wife, that's indecent because only guys could file for divorce in Jewish culture. And he sends her off with a certificate of divorce. She marries someone else and they get divorced that the first guy can't marry his ex again. That was sort of the the rule that this eventually leads to with all these conditions. If you discover this and you write a certificate and so on, it's all leading towards that rule. But, but what the rabbis did is they read this verse and they thought, well, this must be how God views divorce. That if a guy marries a woman and she becomes displeasing to him and there's something indecent about her, that he should write her a certificate of divorce and send her off. And the question in first century Jewish culture really was, what constitutes something indecent? What constitutes legitimate grounds for ending a marriage? 
That was what the conversation was in the first century. And there was really, in Israel, there was two schools of thought. One school was a school started by the rabbi Shammai, and Shammai was interpreting that verse by focusing on the phrase something indecent. In Hebrew, it literally says a matter of nakedness. And Shammai reasoned that if it's a matter of nakedness, that must be something sexual, some kind of sexual impropriety, being inappropriate sexually within, you know, in your marriage, you know, maybe even specifically adultery. And so, and there, um, Shammai's rule was that you can only file for a divorce if your spouse has been sexually inappropriate or cheated on you or something along those lines. There was another school of thought by a rabbi named Hillel. And Hillel, instead of focusing on the phrase something indecent, focused on the phrase becomes displeasing. And he says, no, 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 the divorce is legitimate in any situation where your wife becomes displeasing to you. You know, if you're not happy in your marriage, then file for a divorce. And he says, so for example, and these are literal examples that he gives. He says, for example, if your wife burns your food, That's displeasing. If she is a terrible cook, well, write her a certificate of divorce and send her on her way. Another example that was given, one of the Pharisees divorced his wife because he described her as annoying. She's just annoying. She's an annoying person to be around. She's like nails on a chalkboard to me. I just can't stand, like I just can't stand her. And so he wrote her a certificate of divorce and sent her off. Another rabbi said, well, if you see a woman who is more beautiful than your wife, and you'd rather be married to the more beautiful woman than your wife, divorce your wife and be, go, go be married to the beautiful woman. That just, it's as simple as that. If, you're, if your wife is displeasing, if you're not happy anymore, then write a certificate of divorce and, and send her on her way. And by Matthew's time, by the time he's writing his gospel, the school of Hillel, who said, listen, if you're not happy, just get a divorce. That school had won the debate. Not surprisingly, I suppose. They still win the debate in our culture too. You want to know what legitimate grounds are for divorce? If you're no longer happy, just get a divorce. But he says, but you got to do it the right way. It says you've got to write up a certificate of divorce. You can't just sit, kick her out of your house. You've got to take her to the judge and write out the form that says, on such and such a day, I, so-and-so, issued to you this certificate of divorce and this deed of liberation so that you, so-and-so, may be free to marry anybody you want. And get it signed by two witnesses in front of a judge and just do it the right way because you give that certificate to the woman and now it's, it's, you've taken care of her. You've protected her because you see this woman after your marriage, she's going to have to go marry somebody else because women in that culture can't work. She can't support herself. So she is going to go and get married again or else she's going to end up living in her parents' basement and nobody wants that or she's going to end up hiring herself out as a prostitute because you got to do something to pay the bills. So... This woman is going to get married a second time. And when she gets married, she has this certificate that says her first marriage is over. So she is protected from the charge of adultery. um, Which was a crime in that culture. It was also protection for husband number two. 
Because if there's no certificate for divorce, then husband number one can deny that they ever got a divorce in the first place, come back and claim his wife and claim all of her money and actually take all of the children that came out of the second marriage who were all financial assets in the first century. And so it gives security to husband number two. Listen, the guy, the first guy has got no claims. This is now my family and I don't have to worry about what's going to happen. So the rabbi said, listen, you're not happy anymore? Go and get a divorce. But do it the right way. Right? Give her her 50% and pay your support. Don't be a deadbeat. Come on, do it the right way. And if you do it that way, if you get a divorce with a certificate of divorce and you do all the legalities and you do it by the book and you fill out all the paperwork and you do your part, then you are righteous before God. Then you've done it the right way. Then God is pleased with the kind of divorce that you've had. And uh, not surprisingly, in the first century, like the 21st century, divorce was easy and widely acceptable and rampant throughout culture and even especially within the religious community. Because what they had done is they had taken a rule that was meant to restrict divorce and make it hard to get a divorce that had, had restricted, that was intended to restrict the legal requirements down to adultery. They had opened it wide up to any cause whatsoever, so long as you're not happy. And they had taken this certificate of divorce that was meant to be a protection to the woman, and they turned it into a virtual permission slip to walk away from your marriage, to trade her in for a newer model, to victimize the women all over again. And it's into this conversation that Jesus steps. He says, listen, I know that you've been told that, you know, if you're not happy in your marriage, just go get a divorce. And if you do it the right way, God will be happy with you. But he says, I tell you, verse 32, that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus says, but I'm going to tell you, that's not the way God imagined marriage to be. In fact, Jesus says, all these free and easy divorces, he says, if you divorce for any reason other than adultery, God doesn't even recognize your divorce. Regardless of what the courts say, God does not consider the divorce to be legitimate. Now I know, I'm going to call a time out and say, I know that there are lots of people in all of our locations who have gotten divorces for reasons other than an affair. And you need to know that Jesus is not intending to be exhaustive in his description of the, of the reasons or the legitimate reasons to get a divorce. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it says that if your partner is not a believer, your partner is not interested in living a life following in the way of Jesus, and they're doing damage to marriage, and they don't want to be married to you anymore, you can, just, you can let them go and you're free. There's, there are other... Um, there are other biblically recognized reasons for divorce, legitimate divorce. But Jesus is just trying to raise the stakes as high as he can. He's not trying to lay down a new law. He's just trying to describe an ideal. It says God never envisioned that divorce would be so easy and acceptable and rampant as it is today. 
In fact, God's vision was something completely different. In Matthew chapter 19, this conversation uh, with the Pharisees comes up again. And I don't mind preaching you know, a, a future chapter in the book of Matthew because by the time we get to Matthew 19, it'll be like years from now and we'll have all forgotten about this anyway. It says in Matthew 19, some Pharisees came to him to test him and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? That's the question. Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus says, because they were quoting him, Deuteronomy 24, right? Isn't, isn't this any and every reason, you know, if she's become displeasing? And Jesus says, no, you want to talk about God's vision for marriage. It's not Deuteronomy 24, it's Genesis 1 and 2. It's the very first chapters of the Bible where God says, I'm creating male and female to be together, to be joined together into marriage relationships that are, like we talked about last week, that are friendships that are uh, people committing to do life together as friends in the secure lifelong commitment sealed by the bond of sexual intimacy. Jesus says God's ideal is that men and women would come together into lifelong partnerships that nothing could pull apart. In fact, <laughs> he almost sneaks this by us. He says what God has put together let no one pull apart. In fact, Jesus says when you got married... When you stood there at the altar, this wasn't an agreement between two people who were making some vows and some promises to each other that if, you know, I'll do this much, this part, and you do that part, and so long as you do your part and I do my part, we should be just fine. But, but if you don't do your part, well, then this whole thing's going to start coming apart. This isn't a, like a business contract. Where if one of the partners breaches the contract, the whole thing is null and void. This isn't like a, a sports contract where, you know, you sign it, but you always leave the option open for renegotiation down the road if a better deal seems to come along. This isn't an agreement between two people to come together into a relationship. When you stood at the altar and said your vows, this is something that God, you were asking God to fuse the two of you together as one. And he did. A divine thing happened that day and God joined the two of you together. And now the two of you are one. You're not two anymore. I wish I could come up with a more substantial illustration, but your marriage has become like a brick of marble cheese where white and orange have been interwoven and fused together to each other by somebody who's got more power than me. And it was never, it's now those two colors being fused together into a single brick that was never intended to be pulled apart. You try to pull the white from the orange, the only thing you're ever going to do is end up destroying both. Which is why there's so much destruction and devastation whenever divorce happens. Because those people were never meant to be pulled apart. God joined you together in what, in his vision, in his original creation ideal before sin infected the world was supposed to be a lifelong partnership and commitment of love. 
which totally boggles the Pharisees. So in verse 7, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Look, if marriage is supposed to be lifelong, then why did Moses command us to get a divorce? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. First off, he says, Moses didn't command anything. The Pharisees did. They said, your wife cheats on you. You have to divorce her or else you're condoning the affair. Moses never said that. Moses permitted you. He said, under some circumstances, you may get a divorce. He permitted you because your hearts were hard. But it wasn't that way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. And then Jesus' disciples say, well, then why would anybody get married? And Jesus says, marriage He said, there is a lot of value in staying single. Jesus says, marriages fall apart for only one reason. God's ideal is that men and women would be bonded together for life. Marriages fall apart because somewhere in the mix is a heart that's hard. Or maybe two. That somewhere in the mix, somebody is so unrelentingly and unrepentantly committed to hurting the other person, to violating the marriage vow, to cheating on them behind their back. Someone is so committed to being selfish that they're taking advantage or abusing the other person or trapped in an addiction. Somebody is so hard-hearted and cold and callous that they would rather remain bitter and cold and unforgiving than to try and figure out how to move forward as a couple. Jesus says the only reason marriages fall apart is the hardness of hearts. is because sin has entered into the equation. In God's ideal, marriages last a lifetime and never fall apart. Because like we've been talking about for the last three weeks... When your heart is fully and wholeheartedly devoted to following Jesus, God is in the business of cutting out the hardness of our heart and replacing with a heart that is filled with a love for him and a love for people. The kind of heart that doesn't ask the question, can I get out of this marriage? But ask the question, is it possible for me to save this marriage at any cost? It is a heart inclined to commitment. And if, as we've been talking about this, your mind has been racing to try and figure out whether the divorces you're thinking about right now are legitimate or not, whether or not they meet some biblical criteria for, yeah, it's okay for you to walk away from your spouse. You've missed the entire point. The question is never, is it legitimate for me to file for a divorce? The question is always, is it even possible for me to save this marriage at any cost? And I'm going to be honest and say I know that the answer sometimes is no. I know that it is. That in community, discerned with friends, despite your best efforts, as much as it depends on you, the other person's heart is so hard that the marriage just cannot be redeemed. I know that's true. I know that it's true that sometimes we've decided no. And it's been our heart that's been hard. And we're the one who's walked away. And I just want you to hear, 
If you're the one who sees no option but divorce or you're the one who created no option but divorce, I just want you to hear Jesus say again, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin and adultery is not the unforgivable sin. It's time to bring that heart to Jesus and say, you got to cut out the hardness of my heart and replace it with something soft and tender so that I can become the kind of person that moving forward from here in this relationship or in any of my future relationships is the kind of person for whom divorce is simply not an option. By your strength and filled with your love, it's going to be a different kind of thing whatsoever. Wouldn't it be awesome if that's the kind of community we became? A kind of community where people filled with a love for God and a love for people, motivated and empowered by the Holy Spirit, found it really hard to get a divorce. Because we just become the kind of people who fight for marriage. There's a few things that over the years, just sitting in my office and talking to couple after couple after couple, there's just a few things that come to mind when I think about what it looks like to fight for marriage. I imagine there are three things um, in a reactionary kind of way when marriage is in trouble, there's three things that I would want to challenge every single person who's now in a relationship or plans to one day be in a relationship to get really good at in order to protect yourself from the damage of divorce. And the first one is this, uh, a spirit of openness. A spirit of openness. I can't tell you how many times I've sat in my office and asked somebody the question, have you said that to your wife? Have you communicated that to your husband? Have you told them how you feel? Do they know that this is what you're thinking? Do they know you're struggling with? Do they, have, you heard, have they heard you say this, that this is how you're feeling? Over and over and over again, for whatever reason, there's this culture of secrecy in our marriages that prevent us from being honest enough to speak the truth in love about how we're doing and how we're feeling to the people who are closest to us. And I just, I just, I was going to say I don't get it. I do get it. But if we can finally overcome it and be the kind of people who are willing to name and confront the things that are causing us to struggle in our relationship, to nip those things in the bud early, to make reconciliation a priority and a matter of urgency like we talked about two weeks ago, we can avoid the building hardness of heart that down the road creates the opportunity for divorce. If we're willing to speak the truth to each other, to do it in love, not as an attack, not to say, you always do this to me, but in love to say, can I be honest with you? Sometimes in our marriage, I feel like this. Can we talk about that? I imagine what it would be like after 16 years of having these conversations if we could become people who lived in our marriages in the spirit of openness, speaking the truth in love, if we lived in the spirit of humility and repentance so that when our partner came to us and said, can, I, can we talk about how things are going? And they begin to unfold for us truthfully and in love how they're feeling in our marriage right now. If we were willing to be the kind of people who just sat and received that rather than getting defensive or denying it and saying, I don't do that. 
or getting defensive and say, yeah, well, you, this is what you do and that's worse or, or just flat out blaming them. Well, I wouldn't be that way if it wasn't for you or if your mom didn't do this or to just sat in humility and in the quiet and heard the other person's heart and, and took the opportunity to clear up whatever misunderstanding or miscommunication may have precipitated the hurt on, on the other side. Because in my experience, in my marriage, 80% of the time when Krista and I or I are hurt, it's because somehow somebody misunderstood the other person. And we just need the opportunity to say, honey, that's not what I meant at all. I'm so sorry that you heard that. Or when there is an issue, it gives us the space in humility to acknowledge it, to apologize for it, and to begin to address it by changing whatever it is that needs to change for the sake of our spouse. A spirit of openness, a spirit of humility, and a spirit of patience. The disciples came to Jesus once and said, how many times do I have to forgive someone who's sinning against me? Seven times? That was a lot, because the rabbi said after three times you could haul off and punch him in the face. And the disciples said, no, no, we're bigger people now. We'll double that and add one. Look at how forgiving we are. Because but I'm just telling you, Jesus, that so-and-so's behavior is really starting to get on my nerves. It's starting to get under my skin. And all I want to know is how long do I have to put up with this before I can do something about it? Throw in the towel and walk away or something. And Jesus says, I'll tell you the truth. It's not seven times, but 70 times seven times. And if you're not good at math, that's infinity. Jesus says, you never stop forgiving. You, you forgive them like God is forgiving. God has already forgiven you for way more stuff than you've been asked to forgive them. Just keep on forgiving. Live in a spirit of patience. Literally, the Greek word for patience is long-suffering. Be willing to put up with a lot without throwing the towel or giving up on the other person. Be patient with them while they change. Now, I, I need to say this really clearly. That doesn't mean tolerate filthy, vile, disgusting behaviors that are doing serious damage to you and your family. That doesn't mean we tolerate abuse. It doesn't mean we tolerate addiction. It doesn't mean we tolerate adultery. It doesn't mean we tolerate all the, the really, really hurtful stuff. We, what it does mean is that we are willing with work to forgive the other person and to ask the question whether it's possible to work through it in a way that helps them become healthy and it helps me become healthy and it helps our relationship and our family to become healthy in the long run. And we do it with professional help and we do it with a community of support and we do it with strong boundaries and all those things. It doesn't mean that we say it's okay. It just means we're willing to work past this if the other person is. In my 16 years of conversations with people who are struggling in their marriage, I can't imagine the impact it would have if we could learn with each other to live with a spirit of openness, to speak the truth in love, to live in the spirit of humility and repentance when somebody's confronting stuff in us, and to live in the spirit of patience and forgiveness when the other person's hurting us. That would that'd be a game changer. That'd change everything in those really tough times. But I imagine Jesus wanting to call us to even more than that. It's not just about how we deal with the tough times. It's about how we live out our commitment to marriage. The kind of marriages that we create. Marriage, remember I said last week, marriage is the combination of friendship and commitment and sexual intimacy and passion. 
The marriage is intended to be, first of all, two people going through life as partners and companions and everything, best friends who are together in everything. And so my question is, how much does your partner feel like your best friend these days? How much are you building into your friendship? Do they know they're your best friend? Are you acting like they're your best friend? Are they your best friend? Because they need to be. Do they know that they mean more to you than anything? You would rather be with them than to be anywhere else and doing anything else. They matter more to you than anything and everything and that you're going to be in it together as a team and you couldn't or wouldn't or shouldn't even think about what it would be like to do life without them. You couldn't even imagine it. Are you building into that friendship? Are you building into your commitment? Are you, are you behaving in such a way that your partner knows beyond a shadow of a doubt, they know that they know that they know that you're just not going anywhere? That you, mar- marriage, remember, is a commitment. I said last week that the husband and wife cling to each other like clinging to a life preserver in the middle of a storm. You're hanging on to each other and saying, it's us two against the world. And I don't care what comes and I don't care what it costs. You and I are hanging in together. Do they know that? Are they secure in your commitment? And what do you need to do for them to convince them that you're not going anywhere? Are you building into the friendship? Are you building into the commitment? Are you building into your passion and romance and intimacy? Does your spouse know that you are passionately in love with them? Date nights and cards and gifts and surprises and whatever your spouse's love language is. Do they know that you love them more today than the day you married them? Do they know that you think they're more beautiful today, more desirable today, more attractive to you today than they were the day that you married them? Have you committed yourself to building a marriage that is sexually fulfilling for both of you, but especially for your partner? Because I believe that a sexless marriage is as damaging and destructive and contrary to the will of God for marriage as adultery could be. It's never been God's design for people to live in passionless marriages. But just imagine that for a second. Imagine a couple living together who are absolutely best friends in the entire world who are unshakably committed to each other in an unwavering devotion no matter what comes and no matter the cost and who are passionately romantically in love with each other connected at the deepest levels of intimacy who walks out on a marriage like that no one imagine a couple who when the tough times come are courageous enough to speak the truth in love, humble enough to hear their partner confront something difficult in them and patient and forgiving enough to walk with your partner while they become more of the person you always hoped they would be as they do the same for you. Who walks out on a marriage like that? Nobody. Instead, what you have is a community full of marriages that radiate the love of Christ, that come out of a life of lived in intimacy with God, a life lived in passionate, devoted love for each other. The people get to look at the relationship you share with each other and they think to themselves, that must be what God is like. 
I don't know how you hear this this morning. So I know there's all sorts of people in the room. There are single folks who are trying to choose who their partner is going to be. And I hope you never, ever, ever settle for somebody who isn't willing to prioritize you above everything, somebody who wavers in the commitment department, or somebody who pressures you to behave sexually in a way that doesn't respect you. I hope that you never settle until you find the person on whom you can build, on which foundation you can build a solid marriage that can survive anything. There are married people in the room whose marriages are in all different kinds of stages from stagnant and flat to passionate and going forward. And What do you need to do to divorce-proof your marriage through the way that you are towards your partner? There are divorced and separated people in the room who are hurting and aching and maybe even questioning whether or not you even want to go back. May God fill you with more of his love and more of his spirit so that you can become the kind of person whose heart towards Christ and your partner is never, is it okay to walk away from this marriage, but becomes increasingly, what must I do? What can I do to save it? at any and all costs, so that one day our marriage becomes the story that people point to and say, only God could make a marriage like that. That's the goal. That our marriages become the kinds of things that people look at and say, only God could put together a marriage like that. And if only God can do that, that we need to beg for God to do that in our midst. Let's pray together. Father, I know that no matter what we've been through, whether we've been through marriage or not, whether we've been through separation and divorce or not, whatever we've been through, you have been right there in the middle, changing us and transforming us, cutting out the hardness of our heart and making us new. And God, I just want to pray for the marriages in the room in whatever condition they're in. God, would you fill both partners with an overflowing abundance of the gift of your spirit that motivates and empowers them to make choices that bring genuine honor and glory to you. Would you fill partners in this room, God, with your love, with a love for you and a love even for their partner who's making life hard right now. And God, would you make this community the kind of place, not just where it's harder to get a divorce, but the kind of place where people stand in awe of the kinds of marriages that you are creating in our midst. Thank you for never leaving us or forsaking us, no matter where we are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.